we've actually been going through Revelation in the spring. That's where we're going to be tonight in chapter 3. And before we do, I want to intro us into this passage by asking us probably one of the hardest and most uncomfortable questions uh, that anybody could ask you, who actually, or you could ask somebody who actually knows you, which is, how uh, do you experience me? Like, when you ask a spouse or a good friend, uh, like, how do I actually come across? Can you, can you reveal some things to me about myself that I might not be seeing? Uh, it's, it's kind of terrifying. A lot of us are, are kind of oblivious to how exactly we come across to others. Uh, I know for myself, I'm in a pastor's cohort with five other men, and we meet every year to do a retreat and pray and encourage one another and give life updates and things like this. And on one of those retreats, one of my good friends said to me, uh, you know, Vinny, uh, I know you love us. You're, you're always around. You're really present. But I just want to tell you that you're kind of the house cat of this group. And it was kind of offensive at first. You know, I like to think of myself at least like a dog or something like that. But what he meant was, you know, he knew that I loved them, but it just, just felt like I was just kind of on the fringes, wasn't fully giving myself, uh, my whole self to the group and letting other people in uh, on my life. And it was really helpful for me to have that pointed out because uh, I had no idea that people that I had deemed were close to me experienced me in that way. Uh, but at the same time, it gave me an opportunity to change and be more mindful about how I interacted with that group. Uh, for you all, how do people experience you? And, and my guess is, uh, at times, you might not even be sure, right? This is an endeavor that's hard to uh, enter into, but it's also an answer that we cannot figure out by ourselves. We need other people in our lives to tell us how things really are sometimes, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do in this passage in Revelation chapter 3. This book obviously gets a lot of press for being apocalyptic and uh, prophecy, these sorts of things, but it's also a letter. And the passage we are going to get into tonight is a letter to the church in Laodicea. And he's essentially saying, this is how I experience you, but I love you. And here's an invitation uh, to change. I love you too much for you to stay unaware of your uh, lack of spiritual self-awareness. I love you far too much. He, He wants to open up this church and he wants to open up us kind of like a good surgeon does in order to get in there, uh, do some cleaning, do some surgery in order uh, for us to move on throughout life in a more healthy way. So let's begin reading Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we uh, thank you uh, for this night uh, to come before you to worship, to uh, sit before this word. Lord, we ask that you would use it. Um, that you, you would use it to pierce our hearts, that, uh, Lord, more than just understanding things about you, uh, you would give us an encounter with you um, tonight by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to look at this passage in, in three ways. I want to look at the assessment, the invitation, and then finally ask, so what, at the end. So begin by thinking about the assessment. It's, it's really important to, to not gloss over the first verse we looked at verse 14, uh, which says, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Because we need to hear those words uh, from Jesus, who is true, who has authority, whose character is a binding, who we should listen to, if he's going to say things like he's about to say, beginning in verse 15. Right? He's reminding us, hey, you, sh- you need to listen to me, and here's why. You can trust me. With that backdrop in mind, this is what he says in verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Pretty, pretty strong words. Now, this concept, even this verse, is probably familiar to y'all. I don't know what, what your church background was like, but so often this concept of being lukewarm uh, is, is taught in terms of, hey, you... Uh, need to get more fired up. You need to be more zealous for the Lord. You need to be more active, these sorts of things. And that's not all bad, obviously. But within the context of this passage, that's not exactly what's going on here. Because here's what the Laodiceans would have heard. Uh, Laodicea shared a river with two nearby cities. They had Colossae, which was 10 miles downriver. And then they had Hierapolis, which was across the river by six miles. And the thing that they would have known was that Heropolis was known for its incredible hot spring. Uh, people would travel all around for, it had these healing medicinal waters uh, that people just loved. Uh, it was really refreshing. Colossae, on the other hand, was, was situated right before, below this mountain, which the snow would run off and, and create this beautiful, cool, and refreshing waters. Laodicea did not have great water, like these two other cities. They had to get their, their water piped in through the aqueducts. And by the time it would get to their city, it, would, it just was not fresh. It was gross. Uh, I don't know if you've ever lived in Florida or drank tap water in Florida, but I imagine it was something like that. It, it was just not going to do it for you. And so they would have known these things, and they would have been able to see that Jesus' point was, you are neither spiritually healthy nor are you spiritually nourishing to be around? That, that is not my experience of you. Right now, you are neither providing a hot, healing water to the spiritually sick, nor refreshing water for the weary. And he gives the reason right there in verse 17 uh, with these stern but loving words. Uh, in the Greek, it actually uh, it comes off as less of an accusation and a lot more compassionate than it kind of sounds in English. But he says this, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is not simply talking about personal zeal as the antidote for being lukewarm. He's pointing out what we began with, which is, you know, this is how I experience you. Do you have self-awareness to see how you are coming across, how you are uh, navigating the world? You're supposed to be refreshing and a healing presence to those around you. And yet you are, you are operating in such a self-sufficient way, not realizing your daily need for Jesus, not realizing that you are such a beggar in need of grace. I like what C.S. Lewis points out. He says that people in Jesus' day, if they had an actual face-to-face encounter with him, uh, would have, well, this is what he says, Jesus produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. And yet you have this church that was not that far after the time of Jesus, and yet they're showing this sort of mild approval, showing that they did not really understand who Jesus was. Like in many ways, we still forget today. How do people experience you? Might be a good question for you to ask. I know sometimes I even need to ask my wife that. Not for the sake of feeling bad about herself, but for the sake of growing as agents of life in this world. That's the assessment. But Jesus, thankfully, doesn't just leave us there, but he also invites them into something better. I'm going to look at the invitation secondly. Again, to fully understand the nuances of this passage, we have to understand the context, again, of Laodicea and what they would have been hearing reading this letter. Laodicea was known for three things, primarily, in the ancient world. Number one was its banks. They were rich. In AD 60, there was an earthquake that damaged their city, and they were so rich that they declined aid from the Imperial Guard. They're like, no, we're fine. We, we can handle this. We don't, we don't need your money. Uh, so banks. Secondly, they were known for their fashion industry. Uh, they, they were up to date in the latest uses of wool in that day, and they're at the top of the game in the fashion industry. And then thirdly, it's medical school. They had a great medical school. Uh, they had a lot going on for them, a lot that they could kind of hold up and be proud of, a way they had made a name for themselves in the ancient world. They're proud of money, clothing, health. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in his words to them, if you caught it. In verse 17, he calls them poor, blind, and naked, targeting their pride in their money, clothing, and health. Then look how it shows up in verse 18 as well. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, money, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Clothing. And then salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Kind of hitting at their health idol there. Saying, here's the invitation. Buy from me what you actually do not have. You consider yourself rich because you have these things, but spiritually you are bankrupt. You need the things that you can't actually buy for yourself. Gold, white garments, salve, things that can only be given to you by grace. Because Jesus did not just die to redeem our souls, but also to redeem us from harmful and prideful and self-sufficient ways of living. 
I'd imagine if he was writing to the church in Huntsville, he would have said something about rocket ships and space and that sort of thing. He's the only one who can take care of us. And what we need to hear from these words of Jesus, what he's trying to communicate is that our greatest problem in life is not the thing that we feel the most shame about. It so often is the thing that we actually feel the most proud about, that, that we hold up, that we cling to for our own righteousness in very subtle and sneaky ways. And we all do it. The Laodiceans did it in the ways we just mentioned. But what are the things that we hold up and, and say to the world, this makes me somebody? Look what I've done. Whatever that thing is, if we're, if we're not praying about it, if we're not thoughtful about it, it is the very thing that actually keeps us from Jesus, from intimacy with him. It makes us at times feeling lukewarm, kind of meh. Um, I can think of many different examples to illustrate this uh, from popular media, from my own life, but one that is just kind of humorous to me that I always come back to is, is the time in college, my junior year, I'd really become a Christian not too long ago. And so I had a whole life of catching up on the Bible. I didn't know anything. So I just started reading the Bible, reading the Bible, uh, gobbling up theology. And not a bad thing, right? Uh, But what happened very soon was I I got to the point where I knew just enough to be dangerous. This is what's called the cage stage, when young Calvinists need to be just put away for a while uh, before they get humble, right? Like, just want to fight everybody about theology, this and that. And so that's where I was at. And I I was using uh, this newfound knowledge without any wisdom or maturity to hold it up and and think of myself as somebody. And so one day, my friend Will came to our apartment, and it was a normal hangout of of college guys, you know. Uh, We weren't there to have a Bible study, nothing like that, but I'm sitting there reading uh, some sort of systematic theology book. And everybody else is just hanging out being normal college kids. This was not the time or place, but I'm sitting there reading this book. And um, he uh, sits down next to me and clearly just wants to hang out with everybody else. But some way I'm trying to get him to ask me about what I'm reading so I can just share with him all of my knowledge that I have. Uh, And eventually I basically force him into this conversation. He's clearly not interested. Uh, And he finally just goes, Vinny, your approach right now is, is making me never want to read theology again. <laughs> and I was like, fair point. Because what he was pointing out was the fact that, like, my arrogance was not making uh, these, this beautiful book that I was reading with these beautiful truths that point to a beautiful Savior, it, it wasn't making it appealing at all. My, my lukewarmness was just repelling. There was a different way I could have handled that. That probably could have gone a lot better. I had no idea at that point in my life that I was completely empty-handed before Jesus. And he was giving me an invitation to say, you actually need to come to Jesus and buy. You need to, to stop building your intellect and your ego. You need to actually rely on him and need him, which produces humility. As you think about your own lives, what are the things that you you find yourself clinging to, uh, that you are the most proud of? What are the things that might be getting in the way of intimacy with Jesus? For many, I know in this town, even myself, it's, it's certainly work. 
could be the thing that gets you uh, either too high or too low, depending on how it's going, affects the mood. Uh, maybe the, the conversations that mull in your head with your boss or feeling uh, disrespected or underutilized where you are. Could be uh, family. That could be the thing that might get you too high or too low throughout a week, depending on how that's going, either with parents or kids or spouse. I know my kids are getting even to the age right now where it's so easy to um, think that their behavior reflects on and who I am. The reality is I can't control a four-year-old. What, what is it? It could be like the things that are popping up in this passage, right? Maybe, maybe it is health or money, achievement, clothing, even though I know that that's not a big one in Huntsville with the engineers. These are, there are so many good gifts from God that are not able to hold the weight of our identity, the things that we look to for security and worth. There's something so life-giving as we consider this uh, about remembering that we actually don't have to be perfect to have it all together, to have made a name for ourselves. We don't. We don't. Instead, we're called to a life of need where we're called to invest in the kingdom, to buy from Jesus where he's the one who gives to us materially, who gives us health, who clothes us in his righteousness, who gives us an identity. And when we forget that, it's those moments when we become so easily defensive and wanting to build a name for ourselves and pent up, always having to do more, staying on that treadmill, whatever that might be for us. So what do we do? Leads us to our last point. Uh, So what? This is where this passage gets even better. Because not only does Jesus invite us to buy from him with nothing, but he actually moves toward us in the process as we repent, assuming that we actually do so. Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Remember, this book, this letter was written to Christians. A lot of times, we, this image of knocking at the door, uh, you can think of inviting somebody into, or Christ into your life for the first time, becoming a Christian for the first time. He's writing to Christians here. So there, there's something here for us in a unique way. So I want you to imagine yourself uh, alone in a house. Uh, this is a big house. There are many rooms in the house, uh, and all the rooms in the house represent the different aspects of your life and the different parts of you. So family, friends, work, all your different emotions, the things that are concealed that are so sacred to you but so often don't get talked about in any different day. Jesus is saying, let me into those places. Any of the places that you're keeping from me, let me in. Any of the places that are blocking connection from him, especially the doors with the heaviest locks on them. In the room in this house that's, that says that you can't stop worrying about every detail in your life, Jesus says, let me in. In the room where you feel 
disrespected at work or in the home, let me in. In the room where you might be crippled by what other people think about you or your classmates think about you, he says, let me in. In the room of addiction where self-control is lacking, let me in. All the rooms, the rooms of deep sadness and alienation and loneliness that is plaguing this current generation, he says, let me in. All the different rooms, all the different parts of you. Remember, Jesus doesn't typically kick the door in like a SWAT team, right? This is not how Jesus operates. He waits for you to invite him in. And imagine this house, once he actually comes in, assuming you let him in, he doesn't look around and shake his head with disappointment or shock at all the different parts of you. He comes in, he sits down with you, his daughter or son, and he says, let's eat. I mean, that's the image here. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You imagine th- this situation, I know for myself at least, might be thinking, Jesus, but do you not know what's behind all the other doors in this house? Say, so, no, no, it's fine. We, we can eat. I actually do know all the different parts of you but I do not deal with you according to your sins. That's finished. That was taken to the cross. We can eat. We can enjoy. We can rest. Rest in my presence. Give me all the things that you've locked away and come by with nothing. We don't need to avoid Jesus by being self-sufficient, by keeping him out. The call is to let him love us into more of who we were created to be. People who are more uh, refreshed by his presence and healed in certain ways by his presence so that we can then be those types of people for the world. We can be that type of church. This is the invitation for all of us tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, that you love us enough to speak directly to us, to call us to more. Lord, uh, your grace is extravagant. Um, Sometimes it it doesn't uh, feel real, Lord, Um, but you call us uh, to let you in. Uh, Lord, that is terrifying and that is hard. Lord, but we are thankful um, that all the different parts of us, the parts that we cling to, the parts of our present, of our past, Lord, you died for those things, Lord. You want us to experience more life, Lord. You want to free us, Lord. um, Thank you that you did that at the cross. Thank you that even now you invite us to more of that in our day-to-day lives, Lord. We ask that we would all experience uh, your love and your grace in more um, intimate and real ways. We pray this in your name.